Uh, the photo behind me is from the day that I was baptized. Um, I am that dude with lots of curly hair in the gray tank, um, looking down and sheepish. But that, this was right around when I was 13 years old, and that summer I had gotten involved in a youth group, and what I had learned about Jesus for all the years leading up to that point seemed to finally click. And I, I loved Jesus, and all I wanted to do was follow him. I was, I was worshiping Jesus passionately. I was eating up all the scriptures that I could and went to youth group as often as I could. And I got involved and started playing guitar on the worship team. And just to give you a, a little bit more of a visual for your viewing pleasure, <laughs> here's... Here's a more direct photo of me at the time. Uh, what you might be able to tell is I basically have a mullet in this photo. Um, I, a curly Joe Dirt sort of mullet. I kept telling my grandfather, I just need you to like cut the sides, but don't cut the top and the back, which is the directions you would give to your barber if you wanted a mullet. Uh, and if you're observant enough, you may notice that my shirt does not say Reese's on it, but it does, in fact, say Jesus, <laughs> King of Kings, sweet Savior. <laughs> and to round out that ensemble, I wore brown shorts so that I could match my orange shirt. I felt good about it. I, re I genuinely remember thinking, this is such a cool outfit. I feel so cool. <laughs> Junior high. Uh, and while on the outside, my fashion was just this disaster, on the inside, I was alive. Uh, that season genuinely set the trajectory for my whole life of following Jesus. And I would even say trajectory for what I'm doing with my life, this. But what's interesting is that there were some who were with, with me on that day when I was baptized who are still following Jesus and are still doing amazing things for him. And there are some who aren't. Many of the same people who were baptized with me on that exact same day have actually stopped following Jesus. Uh, maybe they haven't denied him, but their life certainly isn't pursuing him. Or maybe they've dismissed that season by saying something like, I was a kid caught up in all of that weird Jesus stuff. I'm past that now. Uh, I can think of my childhood best friend who started following Jesus right around the same time, and who within a few years got swept into this wrong crowd and is now really, really far from Jesus. And, and beyond that is doing things, is in patterns that are wreaking havoc on his life. Uh, what happened? Why is it that some fall in love with Jesus and continue to follow him for all of their days? while others fall by the wayside or fall into mediocrity or deny him outright? How can there be such similar circumstances, the same message, the same leadership, the same group, the same time in drastically different outcomes? With that, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. And as you turn there, uh, let, me, let me pray for us. <sighs> Dear 
Jesus, we want to come to you open. So we ask, would you grant us minds that are open to the scriptures, ears that are open to your voice, a life that is open to your calling, and a heart that is open to your love. Would you search us and point out all the areas in us that we are closed? Would you open wide the windows of our soul that the Spirit would come through and move in every place? Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched. And they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Last time we were in Matthew's gospel, we looked at the third and final controversy that Jesus had with the religious leaders. And at the very end of that controversy, Jesus makes the astonishing claim that his true family, his brothers, his sisters, his mothers, is made up of his disciples, those who are willing to sit at his feet and learn from him. So coming right off the tails of that story, we read that Jesus exits that house. So he says, these are my brothers, sisters, and mothers. He walks out the front door only for a massive entourage to follow him. Maybe he's looking to uh, go down by the lake, perhaps decompress a little bit, roll out like a yoga mat, practice some mindfulness, and just to get away. Um, but the crowds follow him to the extent that they crowd him off of the beach and he hops into a boat. And so we find Jesus sitting in the boat just off of the lake with the water and the crowds on the sands kind of acting as this amphitheater of sorts. The image closely parallels the beginning of Matthew 5, or what we've come to know as the Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, crowds gathered around Jesus. Jesus took a seat on the mount or on a hill, and his disciples drew near to him for him to teach. Uh, and Matthew is drawing our eye to this text, this series of parables we're about to read, Jesus' next sermon or compilation of teachings, um, as a second set of roadmaps for discipleship. We're meant to look at them side by side, one another. Verse 3 says that he, quote, told them many things in parables. Uh, while the term parable has largely fallen out of our vernacular, many of us are familiar with the concept, either because uh, we're familiar with the parables of Jesus. Think of the lost coin, the prodigal son, the man who built his house on the rock, uh, and many others, or because we're familiar with parable-like children's stories. So think of the tortoise and the hare, Humpty Dumpty, or for you Office fans, the story of the thumbsucker. 
Parables are, are short stories or metaphors that poetically point to a reality beyond themselves. And then they challenge us to live differently in light of that reality. One scholar puts it this way, he says, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life that arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. So notice on one hand, they're common, meaning that they're pretty straightforward and clear. And then on the other hand, they're strange and they're leaving you wondering. I like that line, leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about what it means, about how to apply it. Parables should create in you that kind of doubting discomfort, as if maybe you've missed something. Have you studied it enough? Do you need to look at it one more time? Like a song that you listen to over and over again before you notice that one lyric that stands out, that one theme that puts the whole song together, parables don't divulge all of their secrets at the first read, which is precisely why Jesus uses them. Um, More on that in a minute. But my plan is I want to break down the parable. We'll talk a little bit about the purpose of parables, and then we'll get to relevance in about 10 minutes. Can you hold on for about 10? Great. I'm going to take your silence as a yes that you're willing to hold on for about 10 minutes. So notice, Jesus' parable begins with a farmer or a sower who went out to sow some seeds. The Greek word is sperma. Can you say that out with me? Sperma. Been waiting all day for that. (laughs) For a Jewish reader, uh, the image of a farmer sowing would have invoked images of God sowing all across the Old Testament. Sowing stands as a symbol for the activity of God. Further, remember, this is an agrarian society that depended on farming. So the Jewish reader at this time would have had a much better grasp of what actually goes into sowing a field. But even for those of us who live in apartments and our only plants are the dead succulents that we buy and then we kill and then we replace and then we buy and kill and just do it over and over again, uh, we get this basic farming principle. Seeds grow if they are in the right soil. If in Jesus' parable, four types of soil are imagined. In verse 4, you have the path soil, and the seeds that, sow, that, are, that are sowed fall on compacted dirt or on a path, and therefore they don't sink into the soil. It's too hard. So birds come along and they eat it up. They take it right off the surface. In verses 5 through 6, you have rocky soil. Uh, th- these seeds land in soil with rock just beneath the surface. So some soil in Palestine rested on top of thin layers of limestone. And each night a rain-like dew would kind of fall on the surface and it made that top layer of soil really moist and easily permeable. So any seed that landed on it would immediately pop up and grow. But the text tells us the soil was shallow or it had no depth or no root. So think with me, once the sun comes out, because it couldn't grow roots and go deep, most of that moisture would evaporate. And because the seed didn't have any water to draw from, it would dry out or it would be scorched, to use Jesus' word. In verse 7, you have the thorny soil. Uh, It seems that the seed could permeate and it could make roots this time. But as it starts to break through the surface, it's choked out by the thorns that are competing for space in that soil. And then finally, verse 8, you have the good soil. This soil is nutrient-dense, new seasons approved, compost that grows into, the seeds grow into a crop 
30, 60, or 100-fold. And then Jesus tops off his parable with these famous words, whoever has ears, let them hear. Yes. Or as N.T. Wright translates, if you've got ears, which is all of you, then listen. Then listen. Um, Jesus uses these same exact words back in chapter 11 when he's attesting to and backing up the ministry of John the Baptist, saying, he says this, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and he's just talking about Old Testament context leading up to John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Notice Jesus links hearing and acceptance. Are you willing to listen, to hear? And then beyond that, not only to hear with your ears, but to accept as reality. This little line is our first hint as to what the meaning and appropriate response to this parable are. And luckily for us, in a few verses, Jesus will come out and tell us plainly, here's what the parable of the sower means. But before we jump to interpreting it, one natural question arises. Why does Jesus bother with parables? Uh, Jesus' disciples wondered this very same thing. Look down, verse 10. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Pause there for a second. In other words, Jesus' disciples are asking, Jesus, why can't you be more straightforward? Why are you using all this metaphor when you could just tell it like it is and give it to them directly? Why aren't you being more direct? This is a natural question. And if you haven't asked this question yourself, maybe you've asked something similar like, Jesus, why don't you just come and do an amazing miracle and then everyone will believe in you? Like, Jesus, I, just this great, I promise you this is a sweet PR move. If you just showed up physically, it would be checkmate. Like, all these people would follow you. Why all the mystery? Why all the waiting? And the speculation um, is that Jesus' disciples were, they're with him in the boat. So picture the scene. They're with him in the boat. And while the crowd stands on the shore, you can kind of imagine Jesus having this little conversation with his disciples, bringing his voice a little lower to address them directly, like, psst, listen up. And he has this side conversation. So Jesus gives them a lengthy answer to their question, starting in verse 11. He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Who's the you? Disciples, who's the them? The crowd, yes. Verse 12, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart is, has become calloused, hard, or thick. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Okay, there's, there's a lot here. And the text much like the parable, is actually meant to leave us pondering. It's meant to leave you wondering. It's not meant to give you a straightforward answer. But if I were forced to summarize Jesus' answer, I would say that Jesus seems to use parables for three reasons. First, 
to draw us out of the crowd and into discipleship. You cannot follow Jesus in a crowd alone. You have to emerge and follow him on your own. Two, to reveal the secrets of the kingdom slowly and invite trust along the way. It's like he's, he's giving out these secrets of the kingdom to those who are willing to lean in. Like if you're willing to follow, you get a piece of the kingdom one step at a time. And then three, to distinguish between those whose hearts are callous and those whose hearts are soft or receptive and open. But the parables themselves are not the issue. One scholar wrote, Jesus' parables are not brain teasers intended to stump people. He goes on, there's nothing hard to understand about the parables unless one's mind is already hardened to the truth. The parables do not do the hardening. In fact, notice that even here the door is open. He says that if they hear with their ears and understand with their hearts in turn, what would happen? I would heal them. So having answered their question, he says to his disciples, verse 16, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And thus, we reach the end of Jesus's kind of a side conversation on the purpose of parables. And in light of all he said, Jesus now will actually explain the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. Verse 18, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So again, we have path soil, rocky soil, thorny soil, and good soil. Before we walk through each one, just notice from the beginning how each and every soil is tied to hearing. Jesus will say, this, the, the, this soil refers to anyone who hearing does this thing. That's kind of the formula straight through. So assuming that all of them are hearing and then the response, what happens afterwards is what Jesus is concerned with. This coupled with Jesus' line in verse 9, whoever has ears, let them hear. And then Jesus' strong words about hearing in his explanation of parables make this main point. Seeds grow if they're in the right soil, and good soil is soil that hears. So then if we're going to actually interact with this parable, we need to be asking ourselves, how will you hear the message of Jesus? Or put another way, is your heart able to hear? 
With these questions in mind, let's walk through the, first, the four soils. First, we have the soil along the path. Uh, there's debate as to whether this soil refers to someone who is a follower of Jesus or whether they've simply heard the ideas about Jesus but are not yet following him. Uh, I'm inclined to believe that the text is mostly talking about the former. Uh, notice that the text says, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom but does not understand it, Notice it doesn't say that they reject it, which there were plenty of examples of in the Gospels. Further, at the beginning of verse 18, the first word that will show up in your Bible is listen. But in the original language, there actually the word you was present before listen. So you can almost take it as, hey, you, listen. And the you would have been the disciples. So that leads us to believe that this is primarily a warning to disciples of Jesus, perhaps to someone who's early in following Jesus and in their apprenticeship to him. The key word here is understands. Um, that verb is repeated throughout the text, but most poignantly in verse 13, where Jesus talks about understanding not with the mind, but understanding with their heart. Whatever Jesus has in mind by the word understanding, it may involve the mind, but it runs deeper than that. It has to do with the whole of a person. Notice the message was, quote, sown in their heart but it stayed on the surface and never sunk in. The soil was too compacted and hard in order for the seed to truly sink in. So maybe for you, you've just come out of Alpha um, or you're someone, one of your friends dragged you here. Sorry about that. And you're hearing all about Jesus for the first time and you're wrestling with faith. And my encouragement to you would be keep wrestling. Just keep being open. Keep letting this message about Jesus reverberate in your heart and mind. Keep yourself open. Though that's probably not most of us. Uh, actually, I think this text speaks to many of us who really love learning and really love theology. Um, do we have any avid readers or podcasters? At least a few of you. Yeah, the, the pod, at least there's a lot of podcasters. You can burn through so much content on a podcast. Uh, we are able to access more teaching more podcasts, more audiobooks and ebooks and tweets and articles and reviews and essays, more information than ever before. And on one hand, this is really good. So much helpful knowledge is readily available to us right in our pocket. And on the other hand, this is dangerous because it teaches us a different way of relating to information that we receive. So in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which we've talked about here before, uh, Neil Postman gives the example of news. So before the dawn of the telephone and of television, all news was local news, all of it. So it was something like, hey, did you hear? The Jones's barn is burning down. And because it was local news, all of it was urgent and all of it was actionable, meaning a response was expected from you. In this case, you would go grab your bucket and you go help put out that fire. But with the dawn of the digital age, news and information as we know it have changed. We've actually become really accustomed to hearing information and being required to do nothing with it. We hear hundreds of stories and podcasts and news updates that we don't have to respond to. Um, I think of just, I mean, anytime you're on Instagram, oh, sad, scroll, scroll. Oh, another this. Sad, scroll, scroll. 
Nothing is required of you when you hear all of this information. Or I think of with the rise of kind of podcast culture, particularly around um, either post-Christian or deconstructionist kind of podcasts, there, we've been taught that so much of faith is just something to wrestle with, almost like an idea. God is this idea that you can put in a Petri dish and it's like, I don't know if I can believe in a God who this. And they sit and they have these conversations around it so much that it never actually reaches the point where, wait, I think I actually need to respond to this. That I can't just continue to critique this like it's some idea alone, but actually it has something to do with me. And again, all of this information can be fine as a student or if you're in grad school or whatever it may be, but dangerous as a disciple of Jesus whose good news is news that demands something of us, that demands some sort of response, that demands for us to hear and reevaluate our lives from the ground up. So the call of Jesus then would be to receive, to listen, to keep your heart soft, to let all of the truth about Jesus that you've taken in go beneath the surface, to hear his word and then do something with it. Don't let it sit on the surface as a theory In other words, this matters. This matters. Jesus' word repent was a way of saying, rethink your life from the ground up. Jesus wanted us to re-wrestle and rethink over and over again, lest in Jesus' words, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. Jesus doesn't say what this looks like, but if we take him at his word, we can affirm at least two things. One, that there is a real, personal evil force in the world, and that too, he, not God, keeps people from hearing the message of the kingdom. Meaning that we ought not to be surprised if it feels like all hell is breaking loose when someone is first being introduced to Jesus, or if life seems to be getting harder as you follow Jesus, not easier, which leads us to the rocky soil. So this person seems to go one step further. Um, They hear the message about Jesus. They understand it. They take it in. Again, think of the picture. The seed goes into the soil. And initially their life with Jesus is marked by joy and excitement. They are excited to follow Jesus, to worship him. Much of the spiritual life is marked by this ecstasy and excitement. Um, Generally the kind of person who immediately goes all out for Jesus Um, Thinking to our stage theory paradigm, often this is someone who's in the early stages of following Jesus. You know, and such a person reminds me of my first experiences of following Jesus as a junior high student. I remember how many of my friends were so deeply moved by Jesus. Or in youth group language, were on fire for Jesus, which always sounded like a quite painful experience. Um, but turns out to be a good thing. It's like, that was a compliment in Christian, like, oh, he's so on fire for Jesus. And I say that little tongue in cheek, but none of that is bad. Notice Jesus doesn't warn against emotions or against joyful acceptance, but he does issue a warning. In verse 21, what's the warning? He says, since they have no root. So Jesus seems to draw a difference between this initial receiving of Jesus and having roots. This makes sense in terms of the metaphor. As any plant takes time to grow 
roots. Um, the message of Jesus takes time to grow roots into the soil of our hearts and lives. We take time to grow roots in and abide in Jesus. So it can be said that joyful experience and ecstatic worship are not the same as having roots. Let me say that again. Joyful experience and ecstatic worship are not the same as having roots. So Jesus would invite us to examine ourselves. Do we have abiding roots in him? Are we anchored deeply in him and drawing life from him and not from a feeling? Now, what happens if this person doesn't grow roots? It says that if, this, if the message of Jesus doesn't sink deeply in and they're not, it's not anchored in their hearts, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Easy to rise, easy to fall. They go as quickly as they came. What is perhaps most difficult for us is Jesus' phrase, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word. Did you notice that? Jesus attributes the word as the reason for suffering. Meaning that when they started following Jesus, life got harder, not easier. And while we shy away from this, particularly in the American church, where it's really easy to just use Jesus as your um, pathway to whatever goal that your heart already kind of wanted, um, whether it was like self-betterment or wealth or whatever it may be, uh, Jesus is not scared of this reality. Jesus is actually very open that following him involves suffering. Consider some of his own words. In Matthew 10, Jesus says this, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And then Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. In a city that says, be yourself, treat yourself, Jesus is saying, deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Or I think of the well-known words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In other words, you cannot have the life of Jesus without embracing the suffering of Jesus, period. We follow a suffering Messiah, that the main story of the gospel is that God came among us and suffered to lead us into life. And if we're going to follow him, we need to anticipate suffering. This is the way of Jesus. There is no way around it. To follow Jesus is to embrace suffering. There is tremendous joy. Yes, absolutely. But following Jesus will not always be fun. Jesus envisions trouble and persecution. Those are the two words he uses. Trouble can be kind of a junk drawer term for difficulty and suffering, um, whether it's the daily costs of following Jesus or the way that following Jesus at times is painful for you. Um, it will sometimes mean saying no to your longings so you can align and realign yourself with Jesus and his way. Persecution, that second word, implies suffering inflicted on you by another because you follow Jesus. It could be the way you're seen as unintelligent, narrow-minded, or backwards because you believe in Jesus. Or more likely, in our city, it could be the subtle but deep pressure to kind of just give up. Hey, why are you taking this so seriously? Why does this matter so much to you? Why do you, why do you get so intense about this whole 
Jesus thing. And that slight pull just to kind of release faithfulness to Jesus. But the reality is to follow Jesus for the long haul is to endure days under a hot sun. Thinking back to my baptism, there was so much joy. And we were excited to follow Jesus. We, we loved him and we were genuinely wanting to follow him. And you know, honestly, we had all of these worship experiences that actually remind me a lot of the worship experiences we have here. Um, of, I think of these camps that we would go to, and every single one of these students in my youth group would just be adoring Jesus, hands up, singing loud about how much they loved him. But as I run through the faces and the men and women who were with me then, and how many of them are still following Jesus, a lot of them aren't. Many of them left the confines, the safe confines of youth ministry or their home church. And once they were met with real life, real pressure, real hardship, they quickly faded out. I think of others who went to college and continue to follow Jesus through college. Things are looking really good. But once they finally came across something they wanted, whether a relationship or a habit or something in their sexuality or whatever, or career, whatever it may be, that was at odds with the way of Jesus, and therefore to follow Jesus would mean suffering and saying no to that thing they wanted, they were done. Uh, they did not have roots that ran deep enough to sustain them. And that's what we need. We, they, they had the sun came, they dried up, but what we need is roots that anchor us deeply in Jesus so that even when we're going through suffering and difficulty, when we choose suffering for Jesus, we say, I am satisfied with living water. I have something deeper to pull from than just this experience. Let's move on to the soil with thorns. Uh, an interesting difference between this soil and the two soils before it is that it seems that this seed, the seed in the soil doesn't necessarily die. Uh, in the path, uh, the seed was clearly taken up by the crows. Actually, the text doesn't say crows. I just don't like crows. So I think, I think of them as like these menacing crows. Uh, <laughs> And then in the rocks, the seed didn't have roots and was scorched, so we see that it dies. But in the thorns, it seems like the seed could grow roots, maybe even start to break through the surface. But what's the result? It's choked and made unfruitful. Um, I grew up with a plum tree in our yard, and over the span of 15 years, that tree never once grew plums. Not a single dang dingus plum, not one. And it was there, it, and part of it is because California is a desert in disguise, but it was there, it had leaves, it wasn't dead per se, it looked purple and pretty, and it wasn't being neglected, like it got pruned, all of that, but it wasn't fruitful. It was not producing anything of value, and I think that's kind of what happens here. And what chokes out this plant or this seed, quote, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Some thoughts on each. The worries of life, uh, another way to translate this line is the anxiety of life. Jesus has in mind the cares or the anxieties that riddle everyday life. This is what chokes out the seed. And notice, it's not some sort of gross sin. It's not an affair or violence or whatever comes to your mind when you think of the word sin. It's far more subtle than that. 
and for that reason, far more dangerous. Um, it is the life of what one author called distracted listening. It's like I'm, I'm hearing Jesus, but I'm also hearing this thing and that thing, and I'm thinking about this and that and this. Distracted listening. Another way to think of it is a mix-up of priorities. It's getting caught up, anxious, worried about the kinds of things that are common to this life and thus missing out on the message of the kingdom. It's the daily life of friends, of work, of career, family drama, relationships, all of the ins and outs that make up the human experience. And again, these things are not bad. They're just distracting, which makes them dangerous. They have, if, if we are not aware of them, these things have the capacity to lull us into this kind of comatose state with Jesus and his message about the kingdom so it slowly stops, just stops bearing fruit in our lives. Our translation uses the plural word worries, uh, but a more accurate translation might be the worry or the anxiety of life, uh, just singular. I was talking to some people the other day, and we were joking about virtually how all millennials have anxiety. We are all just so scared all the time. And we were told, you can do anything. You can become anything. And now we're finding ourselves underneath the crushing weight of trying to become something extraordinary. Because that's what we were told. That was what was expected of us. I think it's something kind of like that. It's that compounding anxious longing to bring all of life under your mastery, to control it, to make it work for your benefit, to come out on top. For many of us, this is the singular anxiety of life. And for some of us, wealth provides this false sense of peace, which leads us to the second half of this duo, the deceitfulness of riches. Notice again, this is not overt. It's subtle. Deceptive. It doesn't say that riches murder. It says riches deceive. It promises something that it can't provide. It sneaks up slowly, one thought at a time. Have any of you watched uh, Netflix's Most Extraordinary Homes? I, oh my Lanta, I love this show. And I love this house so deeply. Those glass sliders are unstoppable. And the amount of natural light that you get and the it just like brings me so much joy to look at that house. But I can't watch this show very often. Because if I'm honest, I love bougie stuff. <laughs> like, I just, I love it. I really, I eat it up. And I've noticed that the older I get, the more I actually need to watch the allure of wealth. I find myself thinking about another vacation, which is something like travel is like a luxury thing. In case you didn't, that's like a privilege thing. Like, well, I'm just going to do some traveling. Like, that's money and privilege. Thinking about another trip, another vacation. Thinking about the house with the big windows that I just really want. Or another experience. Or just thinking if I made just a little bit more money, Joe, Mark, and Gerald. Uh, I remember, not a slam to them, they're my bosses. They can give me a raise. Whenever, I remember when I was working part-time as, as a youth pastor, or more accurately being paid part-time to work full-time as a youth pastor, and Maddie and I had just gotten married, and I was basically making 
1500 a month, which when you're living in Southern California is not a ton of money. And honestly, I thought very little about money then. And the funny thing is, the more money I make, the more I think about it, and the more money I want. Anyone else resonate with that? The scary thing for us is that the teachings of Jesus on wealth are relatively clear. It is hard to follow Jesus and be rich. Period. Not impossible, but hard. And I say this to you because most of you in this room are like, check, not rich, 23. (laughs) But I still bring this up because if you are not careful now, you will slowly start to sort your life around a goal of accumulating wealth. And what started as one thing will end up being a thorn that chokes you out. You know, when the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the American dream become muddled together, the integrity that is lost is not of the American dream. It stays well intact. The gospel is what loses its integrity. Uh, Thinking back to the image of the thorns, the thorns and the seed are in competing space. The two cannot occupy the same soil because they're competing for nutrients in soil and space. In Jesus' words, you cannot serve God and mammon or God and money. I think back to a few years ago, um, there was a guy in our community who at the time was unemployed. And despite not having his career lined up, he was full of such life and joy. Uh, He was making all of these strides in his life with Jesus. It was really cool. It was the first time he had kind of anchored to a community in all of his time following Jesus. Um, But under the surface, he did also have a lot of career drive. One uh, One of his dreams was to work hard and get hired at a big company in town that I will keep unnamed. And eventually he did. He got hired working in his dream department at the dream company, And we watched over a series of months as he started coming to community late and then missing nights because he was wiped or too busy or stayed late and then skipping Sundays to work and get ahead on emails. And slowly but surely, he drifted away from Jesus and from community. And he didn't have a drug, a drug problem or start like a side hustle of stealing puppies or anything like that. <laughs> the anxiety of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Or for many of us, I wonder if it's the deceitfulness of career, of that, that goal, that thing that you're after, considering most of you are probably on the beginning of that journey. I wonder how many of us are distracted, chasing wealth, kind of under the guise of hustle, uh, chasing health and fitness, chasing the next milestone, all with the hope that 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 anxiety in our chest might just maybe subside. That maybe if I can get this thing, reach this level, do this thing, that anxiety in my chest will start to... And that is, again, where where wealth will deceive That anxiety will not go away so that we keep fighting to make it go away. And in the process, we gain the whole world and forfeit our souls. We might even on the surface appear to be flourishing 
but in Jesus' mind, to live for the anxiety of life, to live kind of just as a slave to that anxiety, to make life your master. And the deception of wealth is to be choked out. To arrive at the end of your life, maybe getting the dream job, getting that, whatever your goal, you fill in that thing and still thinking, perhaps I bore nothing of value. Jesus describes this seed as being unfruitful. In other words, you can still follow Jesus. You can still attend church on Sunday nights. You can still read the scriptures, be in community, maybe even lead in some capacity, but still run the risk of these things taking hold of your heart and rendering all of it fruitless. To get the job, to get the relationship, to get the right body, to make the right amount of money, to land this internship, whatever it may be, all in Jesus' name. And then once you're on top, wonder, is this all there really is? This is in sharp contrast with the fourth and final soil, the good soil, which, let me read verse 23. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop or fruit, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. The last soil is perhaps the most straightforward. The seed lands in the soil. The seed doesn't simply stay on the surface. It grows roots. It isn't choked out, and it does what a plant is supposed to do. It produces a crop or fruit. One more rigid translation might be it bears fruit and does things, which I like, uh, which would be a slight nod to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Remember, in Sermon on the Mount, Jesus distinguishes between true and false prophets by saying, you will recognize them by their fruit. And then he sums up his whole sermon saying that the one who hears these words of mine and does them, or as we often translate, puts them into practice. Uh, Both of these are summation statements, kind of alluding to the whole life of discipleship. It's saying this person takes in this seed, they endure, they aren't choked out by riches or cares, and on the other side is a life that looks a lot like the life Jesus, of Jesus, the life that he offered, love, generosity, holiness, forgiveness, all of it. And I want to remind you, this is not just about morality. It's not just about what's right and wrong, good and bad. It's about life to the full, a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Who doesn't want to arrive at the end of their lives and say, hey, maybe, maybe this career thing didn't work out. Maybe that didn't happen, but I became a more deeply loving person. Who doesn't want to arrive at the end of their life and say, yeah, maybe, maybe I didn't chase this dream or that dream, but man, I have known peace, gentleness. I have become a gentle man or woman. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, Maddie and I have been going bonkers about strawberries just absolutely loving and tearing through cartons of strawberries. And as we're hoarding these strawberries into our mouths, we're not thinking, yeah, I've got to do this for the vitamin C. Can't get enough of that sweet vitamin A. We're doing it because it's delicious, uh, which is why I had not one, not two, but three samples of the strawberry shortcake at New Seasons last week. Think of fruit, life to the full. The kingdom of God, that's what we ache for. It's what we hunger for. It's what we're longing for. Not just because it's right, but because it's beautiful. Not either or, both and.
30, 60, and 100 were all reasonable crops, implying that there's a range of fruit that comes out of the lives of followers of Jesus. But the bottom line is that there ought to be fruit. There ought to be signs of transformation and kingdom life. And if there aren't, that should give you pause. In our city, one of the main objections you might hear against Christianity is why are so many Christians blank? And you can fill in the blank with whatever you like, unkind, hateful, xenophobic. And even I sometimes wonder, wait, Jesus, is, is your kingdom actually moving through these people? And I don't say that to slam on the church. There's actually a lot too much of that going on. But if we're honest, there's, some, there's been some broken things in Jesus' name. And this sentiment is summed up well by Gandhi's line, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Uh, your Christians are so unlike your Christ, is what he goes on to say. Ironically enough, where a lot of people used to say, therefore, Christianity is not true. It seemed that Jesus anticipated this. That there would be people, there would be seed, who, people who hear the word and who bear fruit and who look like Jesus. And you see kingdom life flowing through their veins and through their lives. And everything they touch looks and smells and sounds like Jesus. And there would be those who hear the word and it just stays on the surface and it's rock hard. Or that even they're still kind of in the Christian community, but it's choked of all kingdom life. For us, then, the question stands, which soil will I become? Because some of this is within your control. What soil will I become? Or put it another way, do I have ears to hear? The call for us is to examine ourselves alongside these four soils. That's what parables are meant to do. Remember, as we read earlier, cast sufficient doubt. And then to motivate us to evaluate and reevaluate and to rethink, to see where we're at. Jesus' word repent had to do with rethinking your life from the bottom up. In short, I would say that there are three enemies working against our hearing. Uh, they are unreceptiveness. We hear, but we don't take it in. It just stays right on the surface. Shallowness, we hear, but it doesn't run deep. We don't grow deep, abiding roots in Jesus. And then distraction. We hear Jesus, but we, it gets drowned out in the noise. Which one is it for you? Maybe you've been on the edge with Jesus, um, not quite sure if you want to fully buy into this whole discipleship thing. Uh, or you become far too accustomed to information waste. Maybe you're in that place of deconstruction and doubt and wrestling, and it has just shifted from like, this is all arm's length and it's on the surface. And wherever you're at in that spectrum, I think Jesus' kind words to you would be whoever has ears, let them hear. That he would actually invite you to open yourself again, to be as open as you can, to hear from him, to believe maybe Jesus, what you're saying is good news. And it's for me. You know, as I was thinking about you, um, as I was prepping, I actually think that that first group could be a lot of you, could definitely be this gathering. But I, I actually felt like there was a sense that the two later soils I could see more in this gathering. Particularly, maybe you've received the message of Jesus 
And there's been this excitement and this ecstasy around worship, which I see so much in the seven, and it's so beautiful. It's been such this amazing move over the couple years from the kind of like moody stand back and watch worship to like now passionate engagement. And that's beautiful. But I also want to encourage you to make roots. If that's you, if that's, if that's been that shift for you, I would encourage you, dig roots into Jesus. Because when suffering comes, you will need something deep to sustain you, to find life in him, not in feelings, not in a high, not in a moment, but in the person of Jesus, in the words of John, to abide. Maybe you're in a place of suffering, whether you've suffered before and this time it just feels like this is the breaking point, or this is your first time suffering. You're like, hey, I thought following Jesus would mean more than this. And I would encourage you, would you make roots? Would you keep fighting to find life in Jesus? Would you abide in him? Whoever has ears, let them hear. And then I also, as I thought of you, I thought of that third soil, which, again, seems intuitive and not counterintuitive because a lot of you don't probably have a lot of money, not to judge you. Um, but just because of age of this gathering, statistically, you're earlier on in your career. And I think just pastorally, I would want to encourage you, do not be lured by the anxiety of life and the deception of wealth. Man, you cannot live for just your career. You can't. It won't cut it. Whatever it is, whatever the relationship is, whatever the career is, whatever that thing you're thinking is like, this is going to satisfy me. This is going to make that anxiety subside. I just, I beg you, do not live for that. It will not satisfy you. Maybe you're in that space where you've become preoccupied. One test for this is what are you thinking about all the time? Just like what's filling your thoughts all the time, and that might be something that's preoccupying you, that's distracting you, that's a thorn. Maybe your mind has been filled with a complex set of challenges that make up your life, this friendship, this relationship, this career. Maybe you've been allured in by that vision of the American dream, like this is what I can become, this is my career, who I'm going to be, rather than the kingdom of God, and it is slowly but surely choking out your spiritual life. Maybe it feels dull or dry, or lacking vitality. And I think for wherever you're at, if any of those things resonate you, I think the invitation would be from Jesus to cut those thorns, to cut them out now, to get them out now, because they will choke you out. And then instead to give your attention to Jesus once more, because he has the life that is truly life. Again, whoever has ears, let them hear. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit Bridgetown dot church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.